Okay, Pete. So, uh, yeah, uh, comments, questions? Thanks, Peter. Um, so I need to prefix everything I'm going to say by saying I want to be a universalist and I don't trust many Christians who don't want to be because it makes me wonder why not. Uh, and I'm a big fan of um, Bentley Hart's work. If we go to uh, 2 Thessalonians, which is generally understood to be written by Peter, uh, Silas and Timothy, um, Paul talks about the persecution of the church there. And in verse 5 he says, All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those uh, who are troubled uh, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with powerful angels, so on and so forth. Then he says, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and in all his glory and might. Um, now, the Greek adjective there for everlasting is the one that we were talking about regarding eternal. Anytime it speaks about uh, ever, eternal life or everlasting punishment, it uses the same adjective. adjective. So, if you're talking about eternal life, uh, it uses the Greek adjective. If you're talking about eternal death or eternal punishment, it's using the Greek adjective. Thomas Schreiner, who's a reformed... Um, exegete would argue and this is part of the strength of why hell is eternal if life is eternal hell is eternal um but then if you if we are kind of looking at the work of mt Wright and the others where the kingdom of god or the kingdom of heaven is the ultimate goal and heaven itself is not actually eternal but a resting place as mt Wright might suggest that might cast doubt over the eternal nature of hell so i think it's great having this conversation and there's just to push back a little bit So yeah, I, I, I'm not really equipped to go verse by verse. I'm working my way through it. Um, I can't buy at the eternal heaven, parallelism, eternal hell. They would just be in a contradiction in terms to me, hopelessly dialectical contradiction in terms from a common sense point of view. To me, life is God is God, and only God has the characteristic of whatever we mean by that word eternal. And to confer the same characteristic of life onto Hell, as if hell is an equal property with, with the same adjective in front of them, to me is just an utter contradiction in terms. I can't, you know, I mean, I view the word of the ages as not being just limitless time, as if that was some abstract property as a backdrop against which things happen. I view it as eternity is the fullness of the gift of God in life and the ultimate expression of God, and only he has the quality of being foreverness whatever that is and so I therefore can't I can't I've never been able to see the par the apparent parallelism between well if hell if heaven is eternal then there's eternal evil as well 
I just that's certainly how I view it at the moment. So I think I prefer that. I really like that translation of the word eternal as of the ages, um, which. Yeah, so yeah, a lot to think about. There's, there's plenty of those other verses, so I'll just hit back with Romans 5, like Bible verse tennis, bang, 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 bang. <laughs> the point I make about Bible verse tennis is that the reason I quite like that metaphor is, is like whoever serves the ball's in your court and you've got to return it. And uh, there are a heck of a lot of these kind of positive verses <laughs> that need a, uh, they're a 200 kilometre an hour serve. We've got to get them back across, the, we've got to get those back across the fence as well, so... But I've always, even before I got onto this, had that feeling about there's no, the, the, the parallelism between heaven and hell as if they're two equal states was false. That's what I've always thought. Uh, and then I read Gregory, who's just breathtaking. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I'm always looking in my life for the people with the big mind and the big ideas. I don't like people, I don't like even detailed scholarly stuff that's trading verses around. You're down in the weeds. You read Gregory, you're kind of like you've taken off. You're off the planet, you know. <laughs> and and I, I like people like that, you know. They're profound. That, even if they were on the other side, I just, I like profundity. I don't like detail. Sorry, that's just me. I mean, I could, it's my way of getting out of details as well. I know that. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true, actually. <laughs> Other comments or, and it's not just me answering questions. You know, someone else I'm, uh, who wants to kind of, down the, there's a question down the back, yes. And then another one, yeah. All right. Go up the back first, mate. This grace thing. Thanks. I think my question is um, two parts. And the first would be, um, do you think that Jesus suffered God's wrath on the cross? Uh, and then in which case, which would uh, open a way for universalism still? Um, but then how do we it, um, encompass God's goodness into punishing someone sinless, him, for us, sinful, I guess? Well, that's a small question at, uh, <laughs> at 9 o'clock after a long... Like, I was in Perth yesterday trying to sell, right? Uh, <laughs> Um, look, you've asked the right... That is another one of the questions. You know, I had those tangle of questions. That's another one I didn't put there, which is the nature of the quote-unquote punishment of Jesus. You know, what, did, did the father punish the son, you know, in that judicial metaphor? And a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. Um, comfortable with it that Christ died for our sins, but they don't want to put it through the prism of father punishing son in a guilt transaction. I'm in the early days thinking about that. Um, don't know, but uh, I can tell you I am satisfied that's inadequate. That's a, a perspective, but there's more going on. Um, at the cross, there's, there's a lot more going on. Um, you know, my sweet wife and I have been through quite a harrowing time, me watching her enduring, and we've thought about pain. And Jesus heals all the... He took all the pain of the universe. Forget sin. I mean, just this enormous cosmic absorption of pain and suffering, not just evil. So I guess I would... I, I certainly feel that the prism of looking at the cross merely through a judicial metaphor is too small. Um, I definitely think... I mean, Bentley Hart might overstate the case. He, he likes doing that, and he overstates cases in impenetrable language as well. But... Um, 
I think he's right that there's a vast strand throughout the whole Bible of dominion where Jesus' enemies are the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Ephesians is really setting itself against, and it climaxes with, we're not fighting with flesh and blood, we're fighting against principalities and powers. And he conquered them at the cross. So there's something, and how that conquest happened, of course, there are various answers, but I do think the idea of a cosmic battle that was won at the cross of proportions beyond mere judicial, um, I'm certainly attracted to that, but I haven't got a package to put it in. But it's a really big question. Yeah, yeah Rick's going Rick's to rescue me. No, 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 it's great. He might Sorry. say, finally, I know why. I've just had doubts about you, Tony. All oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tony, it's great. Thank you for being so courageous. And uh, it's great to be stretched. And But it's just interesting. I, I taught Mark last week, week before last. And uh, so one of the key points in Mark is where you might remember... Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give answers. And then, you know, who do you say? And Peter says, you're the the Christ. And it's amazing just how many um, of my colleagues don't notice how Jesus responds. Because he doesn't say, and the Messiah must be crucified. He doesn't say that. He says, the son of man. And most people miss that distinction. But Tony's taught me to pay attention to literature, as did my educators like Gordon Fee. What's intriguing about that is Son of Man is only mentioned twice earlier in Mark and on both occasions it's when Jesus does stuff that only God does. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Why say on earth? Well, because everyone knows that forgiveness of sins happens in heaven but this guy can do it on the earth. So, and then the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, Yahweh's Lord of the Sabbath. But Mark's already told you that from the beginning. Mark doesn't actually start with the view of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus is Yahweh, actually. And that's partly been misread because um, we've made this terrible mistake of thinking this story begins with the Greek New Testament, and it doesn't. If you go back and, and get some of that earlier stuff, uh, what you've really got is Yahweh who says, whack me and see what happens. So when, I'm, when I look at what's going on at the cross, um, the first thing is I'd say, I'm hoping to present a paper on this in a couple of months in England, but Jesus defeats Satan in the temptation. So he casts out demons and people say, how can you do this? He says, I've done this because I've bound the strong man. Well, he didn't do that on a cross because he hadn't died yet. Where does he do that? You can't bind someone unless you defeated them. He did that in the desert. And that's why he can cast out demons left, right and centre without any trouble whatsoever. So that, plus if you look at the text that Jesus uses to describe his death, Isaiah 53 and uh, Exodus 24, none of them talk about Satan. So in my view, Satan has nothing to do with what happens on the cross. The defeat of Satan happened earlier. His minions are cast out long before that. Something else is going on at the cross that has only to do with God and his people. And the Jesus on the cross has to be Yahweh as well. Because he's the son of man. You've got to put that into it. So just in terms of that particular question, um, I think that's got misread. And partly that's happened, if I can say, because many of those church fathers don't know how to read Hebrew and they don't think about the world the way the Hebrews do, which is a whole Edwin Judge, Jerusalem versus Athens thing, right? And they often want neat questions. And Tony's really helped us tonight. There is not going to be an, sorry, a neat answer. There's not going to be a neat answer to this question that's going to fit a rationalist model that we come at with asking our own questions. So I'll finish with this last comment. I've rattled on, but I say to my students in Mark, don't come to Mark with your questions. You don't even know if they're the right ones. Let Mark tell you what questions you ought to be asking. 
And I think it's the same thing with the scriptures. We have all of our questions. But you, I think we have to keep saying, are they the right ones? What makes us think we know what we're asking about? And Tony's told us that. Because every question presupposes it knows something of the answer. What if you got it wrong? So, sorry about that. I'll stop. Here ended the first lecture or something. Well, that sounds you like, can whack me. It sounds like you could have a... Now, come to you, Dave, in a second. Uh, it sounds like, uh, Rick, we might get another talk and gospel conversations from you later in the year on that. <laughs> I just um, a book that I'm reading. Tom Wright's "The Day the Revolution Began" wrestles with the question that you're asking. The first half of it, especially. Thank you. You hold that. Yeah. All right. Well, it's very interesting to um, have a statement here amongst such luminary minds. I feel a bit hard going after you, Rick. I'm sorry, but um, my 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 role is probably to bring this to a lowbrow sort of area. I've considered this issue for quite some time, actually a number of years, and um, I tried to distill it down into practical terms that I would understand. So I put a, um, a bit of an illustration together about, about Jack. Jack comes to the church, um, standard Orthodox Evangelical Church, and, um, and the pastor spent time with Jack. And, and Jack's come to the come to the pastor he said i'm just about there i've got what you're saying i've just about there i'm just about ready to believe i've got one more question though i want to talk to you about my nana um she was beautiful she died last year and um she was so good she used to walk boy scouts across the road you know um but she was a great cook lovely everything she was she brought me up. She taught me so much about love. And, and she died last year. She never darkened the inside of a church, ever. He said, now, according to all the things that you've taught me, um, being good, strong Calvinist, um, am I right in understanding that she died without acknowledging Jesus, so she's going to go to spend... Eternity in conscious torment in hell. And to be honest, the pastor would have to say, after a fair bit of equivocation, yes. And he said, well, I don't want any part of a God like that. And that, to me, simple man, that was compelling. Thank you very much. Yep. Well, uh, simple as that is, that's actually what Bentley Hart, who's you know a very profound and increasingly influential theologian, says. Actually, pretty much the same thing. Anyway, let's have some more, David. Thank you. Could you put the slide back up that had the number of levels of yes uh, okay. conversation? Yeah, I. I I uh, am made in the image of God, so I tend to assume that he's capable of more than I am. Um, and what I know is that when I... Uh, 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 Tony put this slide up and then he kind of moved through it really fast. But I think it's actually really important for how we have some of these conversations. Um, I have a number of conversations with my wife. And I don't expect that God is less capable of having a number of conversations with us. So I have one with my wife, which is about our house, 
whether it's an asset or a liability, when we should sell, when we should get out, capitalise, you know, we're getting older, what about agility? All of that sort of stuff. That's a conversation. It's a fairly long horizon. Then we have another one. We have many, but another one is about employment and purpose and what the heck are we doing on this earth and all the, you know, so like what job should we look for next and all the rest of it. And... Then we have another one about Christmas and family balancing and is it Melbourne this year or Adelaide this year or Sydney this year and all the rest of it. And so there's just three big ones, if you like. You know, the biggest one on the longest horizon about asset, you know, the middle horizon there about uh, what, what job we might get next uh, this year and so forth. And then we can get down, to the really, down in the weeds about this Friday night and what are we going to do and so forth. And I think God is running a bunch of multiple conversations. I think that he started one with Adam, uh, which I characterise as about sovereignty, about kingship, about... Uh, see this whole blinking thing? I put it here. You know, the lights in the night sky, I did that. So that you know. And there's the one with Abraham. That's the more covenantal one. This is, I'm engaging with you guys. I'm going to rebuild this. I'm putting something back together. Um, then there's the one with Moses. You know, so like the more propagetic one, the, the educational one. Uh, I'm going to do something here that I want you guys to look at because it's going to tell you a lot about who you are and about what's possible and about what I need to do next and so forth. So that sense of multiple conversations running, none of which necessarily has to be finished yet, each one of which is unfolding. And it's sort of like, where in all of those conversations does this conversation about hell and heaven fit? And where is it, where is it fallen out historically? And is that the right place? And so I think that was what was sort of came to mind, Tony, with your layers there. And uh, having said my piece, I'd, I'd love you to comment on that perspective. Uh, thanks, David. Yeah, I actually think this... Di I like diagramming things because you can put actually very complex matters in very simple ways. And um, I think David's hit on an important point that in, in the Bible, we have levels of abstraction and engagement. And um, you can see on this particular diagram, it's actually quite important. It's, what we, it's a variation of what we call the funnel of scope, that the top is longer and then the other ones fit inside it. And one of the big mistakes you make in life is if you're too narrow at scope, it's a bit like that, that commission of big thing, you're asking questions that are real, they just don't have the perspective. And, um, and as you come out to the bigger, more longitudinal questions, uh, you get perspective and you can return to the more detailed questions with a fresh perspective. Uh, and this ability to level up and down is very rare. Uh, to, to me, there's a lot of this going on in the heaven and hell. Um, one of the things that strikes me, for instance, uh, well, David just alluded to it, but I, I can tell you, I mean, Anne and I have shared a lot about Gregory of Nyssa. I have just never read anything like it. It's like you're absolutely back at the creation of the world. And 
the effects of it are breathtaking to, to go back down to lower things. And these are people who lived incredibly godly lives as well. So the effect of um, zooming up and down is very, very helpful to us in this matter. And, th and there are questions at different levels too. And they're all, they're all real. But, but the, the important point is asking the bigger question. And I, I was very, what I said is right. There is no question in my mind that the, the, the preoccupation we have with this heaven and hell and who's in and who's out is simply hard to find in the Bible. I mean, it, it's just, it's not there as we are saying it, which tells me, we, you know, we've somehow or other definitely got something distorted compared to them. And I'll tell you another issue which will become uh, on this perspective thing, which I didn't mention, but it's certainly true to me, that one of the issues that really, and I'll, I'll say more about this in a later talk, strikes me about the typical evangelical doctrine of forgiveness of sins and you can only get in by belief or not, is it totally flattens out judgment. It just totally flattens it out. It's just like either you're in and out, it's binary. You get everything, get nothing. And Hitler and Grandma, Hitler and grandma they're both there. You, you know, um, the dear Grandma and Hitler are in the same place. It was just like, and, and this whole, it's clear to me there's tons of stuff in the New Testament about being accountable for your actions. I mean, Jesus is on and on about it. And the other point, which I didn't mention, a point which uh, I think I heard Bentley Hart talk about in the talk, that I think is very good. Judgment is a very good thing. Every film, every film, you know, the plot is the bad guy has got to get it in the end. And if he doesn't get it in the end, we come out and we're really irritated. You know, I mean, there's this picture I should have cut out of the Herald of the mafia boss in Griffith being buried at 80 years of age in his gold coffin and he was the guy who shot Donald Mackay and everyone knew he shot Donald Mackay and they couldn't pin it on him for 50 years. So Donald Mackay, you know, a Christian man who was trying to beat the drug trade on account of the kids, he was shot in a car park, they never found his body and this jerk through corrupt police, he lives a, a life in mansions and he gets buried in a gold coffin. Well, bring on some judgments. What I, we all say, like, it's a good thing. You know? So, But this issue of judgment, um, to be honest with you, in the universalist, it, that higher perspective gets more of a play out, which I actually find I like, actually. So anyway, that's that. Probably a, the, other, the final point about, to, just from what you said, David, is the idea of perspectives matters that any question can have multiple perspectives, multiple layers to it. Not just layers, but perspectives. The one we talked about, you could look at the cross through a judicial metaphor, you could look at it through other ones. And they're, you know, they're all, in my view, got something to add. Where God is bigger than us, that's one of the problems we're sort of stumbling towards Christ. Janet? I just am um, picking up on David's comment about um, covenant, that if you think that, you know, God has had multiple covenants already with his people, and so the last one is like the one that inaugurated with Christ, well, that doesn't mean to say that at some point in the future there'll be another covenant when, yeah, other things will be revealed. I mean, there's the, already the covenant with Christ is so different from any of the previous covenants. You know, we've now got the notion of like eternity and those sorts of things which we never had before. So, um, yeah, so who knows what God's going to do in the future? Yeah, um, yeah I... Just picking up on John Walton. Yeah, I think the, uh, the other, the other, the other um, 
spin I've had on the, to build on what you've said, on the perspectives issue, is the issue that the problem that we have that we can only conceive of things in time. And um, I like playing with the idea that if you'd have got me, like, at 10 BC or 100 BC and asked me to predict how the Old Testament prophecies were going to come true, I would have had zero chance of getting anywhere close to it. Like, no, you just, if you just, it's a good exercise to put yourself back there and see what would you have expected. I mean, nothing. It was a total shock. So, okay, well, let's now just be a bit humble. Presumably the same thing's going to happen for us. We have to be faithful. We've got what we've got now, best we can. And one of the problems, uh, I think, of prophecy is, I, it's a simple metaphor, but looking along a fence line, and if you look along a fence line out in the country and it's straight, you see one fence post. Actually, there's a hundred if you move out to the side, but you could only see one from where you were. And I, I often feel we're like that. We're looking along a line of fence posts, so they were as well, like um, that are all concentrated around truth, but in fact will play out at different eras. That's probably a good place to stop. <laughs> well done, you. Thank you.